From the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, August 13th. I'm Monique Aiken. Today I'm joined by Donnell Baird, CEO of Block Power, to talk about the trillion dollar infrastructure bill passed by the U.S. Senate this week and the latest dire warnings on climate. Hi, Donnell. Good to see you as always. I'm glad to be with you. And we'll hear from Lori Chapman, head of Enterprise Community Loan Fund and my guest on the Reconstruction Podcast this week. We talked about Enterprise's equitable path forward. We challenged ourselves. I said to my team, I said, look, let's go back and look at our underwriting, quite frankly, our our risk models and and what we consider folks need to have um, as a minimum to be able to access our capital sources. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in impact investing. The big takeaway from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's blockbuster report, time has just about run out. Scientists say the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold is likely to be breached within two decades. Sea level rise of two meters by 2100 is possible. Bottom line, worst case scenarios are becoming increasingly plausible. The UN Secretary General says it's, quote, a code red for humanity. Investments designed and measured for positive impact reached $636 billion last year, up from $505 billion in 2019, reports the International Finance Corporation. But the top-line numbers concealed a steep drop in both the numbers of new funds and new capital raised during the COVID-19 pandemic. TPG Growth's Rise Fund backed human interests $200 million round. Employee benefits like health insurance and retirement plans are often too expensive for small and mid-sized businesses. San Francisco-based Human Interest has a no-fee 401k retirement plan for small businesses. A growing number of communities are creating investment funds to shift power and build local wealth by giving an initial boost to local businesses that are not yet bankable. In North St. Louis, WePower is closing its $1.5 million target after a half a million dollars committed from living cities. Changing the nation's 80-year-old securities laws would accelerate the efforts. Twiga Foods is helping Kenya's informal retailers stock their shelves and reduce prices. Impact Alpha contributor John Girani in Nairobi profiled the company, which runs tech-enabled warehouses and shuttles food products from farmers to retailers. And Greta Thunberg graced the cover of Vogue Scandinavia in an oversized trench coat made from upcycled materials. The teen activist called out the human and climate impacts of fast fashion. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email each day this week. So glad to see you again, Danelle. So glad you could break away from Google's Climate Tech Accelerator and congratulations on your graduation of the program. We are in the bottom quartile of the cohort. We almost <laughs> failed out of a free accelerator program, <laughs> but we made it. We're going to graduate. I'm thrilled. Well, we're happy to hear that. And and other things that you've been working on, I know that you're also um, tracking the infrastructure bill that passed in the U.S. Senate this week and the even bigger reconciliation package that's making its way through the process. How big a deal are these investments in U.S. climate action? Well, they're the, I mean, they're the biggest investments in history. Um, you know, literally, you know, dollar for dollar, they're the largest climate investments that have ever been made um, by the federal government or by any government. And, 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 um, I understand critiques um, that folks have that, you know, it doesn't match the scale of the, the climate crisis that we're in um, or that we're heading into as it continues to compound um, in immediacy in terms of danger. But it's still the largest investment that's ever been made in climate. And so 
that's something to celebrate. I think as I feel like a veteran of the the last stimulus in 2009, 2010, um, we have to to make sure that we make smart use of this money, that we're efficient, that we're smart, that we make tough decisions and leverage the money um, to, to maximize greenhouse gas reduction. Absolutely. And what kind of opportunities does this open up for other climate entrepreneurs and perhaps others in your cohort, as well as investors? What might be the impact on Block Power itself? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we we have spent, the, the, the area that Block Power is focused on first and foremost has been uh, actually community broadband. Uh, we, you know, as soon as the pandemic started, we knew as a, a public benefit corporation, as a social enterprise, that um, we were going to have to respond to the crisis. And clean energy is important, and it's critical, and it's essential. But it was not top of mind um, in many communities of color, uh, in many low-income and working-class white communities. Obviously, the pandemic was and the unfortunate job losses. And then, of course, the digital divide, the fact that you know many, many, many more students than I think we realize um, did not have internet access, which means that they don't have access to the modern economy or the modern educational system. And particularly in a pandemic, we're, we're, we're just alienated um, and disconnected. And so we, we you know, decided to build out a business line. We had a conversation with our lead investor, Mitch Kapoor at Kapoor Capital. And Mitch said, look, Danelle, you got to respond to this crisis. Yes, you got to continue to invest in clean energy projects, but you need to respond to this crisis. And our response that Mitch and I came up with was community-owned Wi-Fi. And so we've been working with the White House and, um, you know, their staff there to, to take a look at how this infrastructure bill on a bipartisan basis could fund community-owned internet infrastructure broadband uh, access uh, in low and moderate income communities that they literally own. So not just equity in the terms of, of like social justice, but equity in terms of like literal ownership of stock in a special purpose entity that owns a set of infrastructure assets. Um, in this case, those assets are uh uh, broadband connectivity assets that'll close the digital divide. So we want our low income families to own stock in these companies um, or these local infrastructure project uh, corporations um, so that as we're closing the digital divide, we're also building wealth in low and moderate income communities across America. And so we fought really hard to make sure those policies were included in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and they are. So that's fantastic. And it's a really great high impact opportunity to close the digital divide, bring workers and families and students into the modern digital economy while building up wealth and creating short-term and, 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 and medium-term internet installation and internet network maintenance jobs across uh, low-income communities. And so uh, we're working on that with Kpoor Capital and Goldman Sachs um, in various cities across the country. It sounds like a really elegant solution to a complicated problem. And we really appreciate you the work that you're doing generally to just, you know, highlight some of the other multiple compounding crises that go beyond just the climate angle, though 
this week's IPCC report suggests that we have to move much, much faster on the climate side as well. And what was your take on that specifically? And are there any reasons to be hopeful or are we doomed? IPCC says we're kind of doomed, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not, it was pretty bad. I, um, uh, the coping mechanism that, that I use is, you know, I, I work on trying to bring forward solutions to the climate crisis at scale. And that's what I do 24 seven. I wake up at, you know, two, 3 a.m. in the middle of the night, sending emails, trying to to move our agenda forward at block power, which is to reduce greenhouse gases across the country by, you know, 20% overall. Um, buildings contribute 30% of emissions to the U.S. economy. We have existing technology. We have financial partners. It's just a question of willpower and operational capacity um, and whether or not I'll get over my hatred of venture capital fundraising to raise enough capital to reduce greenhouse gases in buildings across America. And when you're in the day-to-day of managing personnel or projects or dealing with issues and challenges or RFPs and contracts, it's easy to lose sight of like the bigger picture because you're using your work or I am using my work as a coping mechanism to like avoid the reality of the imminent disaster um, that seems to be waiting for all of us. The hopeful, the silver lining is that there is an outside chance to avoid the worst um, impacts of the climate crisis um, if we make some like rapid, 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 rapid changes. And I think we can make some of those changes. I think that the infrastructure bill gives us a, a decent start. I think that the potential you know, uh, democratic reconciliation uh, climate and, and social infrastructure bill that's that's being negotiated now is a pretty good down payment. And I think if we use that capital in a smart way and in an efficient way, that we have a, a, a an outside shot at avoiding the most disastrous uh, impacts of climate change. And so I think that as I look around, you know, leaders are stepping up um, all over the place. And, um, you know, hopefully we can all come together and do smart, uh, innovative, creative, scalable solutions to respond to the crisis. And hopefully for folks who haven't been working on the crisis, the report's a little bit of a wake-up call, particularly in the context of, you know, the American West burning, the smoke floating all the way across the country and causing, you know, purple-orange sunsets in New York City where I live. Um you know, things are getting pretty bad. And I think more and more people are alarmed about that. And um, we need to translate all of that uh, into policy action. But more important than policy at this point, we need to be able to implement solutions at scale. And so that's what Block Power is trying to do. And so part of it is uh, sticking our heads up to, to, to look around like a gopher coming out of a hole and, and, and seeing how bad things are getting, but then going back to digging our tunnel and trying to uh, make sure that we can reduce greenhouse gases in the building sector and then folks who are working on EV and EV charging stations in the transportation sector or agricultural sector, um, that those folks can scale successfully as well. I would, I mean, I would ask you, Monique, like, how do you see the impact investment community responding to the IPCC report? And what are you guys seeing? 
Well, I think that we're still waiting to hear from a lot of voices in some ways. And this is partly why, you know, we're coming to folks like you who are experts on in this sector where climate justice meets infrastructure justice, because there's a unique moment in time, as you described, we have the first urgency of now and will we get it right? And, you know, we wonder, um, we haven't moved fast enough yet. And how can we accelerate? Really, that's that's the challenge here. And you also mentioned something about, you know, the funding struggles and, and not, you want to be an operator and do the thing that is going to make the change faster. Yet you must spend some time, you know, finding the investors and, and the challenges that that brings. Um, and then this week, we talked to Lori Chapman of the Enterprise Community Loan Fund for the Reconstruction Podcast. They're trying to solve a problem, the shortage of equity and project finance for community-based real estate developers. So what you'd often find is that um, communities um, and developers in that community have spent years, for example, working with state, local government and other parties um, with a vision for that community. Ultimately, they get to a point where all the boxes are checked, they get sign off and they get, you know, for example, master developer rights. But then they come to get financing and what shows up is, well, wait a second, right? You know, you you don't have enough liquidity or you don't have enough of a balance sheet. So in order to get this deal done, you need to go partner, right, with, with this other firm that's larger, that's bigger, that, you know, supposedly has, again, the ability to stand behind the risk. But there's a cost for that, right? And so the, the extractive nature of our forcing that partnership continues to kind of perpetuate um, the the inability uh, of these developer partners, be they again for profit or nonprofit, to really um, realize the benefit of the ten years, you know, or whatever it's taken them to get to that point, and then suddenly all of the again, for lack of a better word, profits associated with that 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 I know for these developers are going to reinvest in that community in a real way. They leave. They leave because you've had to pay handsomely for the balance sheet of, you know, the JV partner that that we forced you to to enter in with. Well, you know, I I I, I when we started Block Power, we were uh, speaking with the Enterprise Foundation about uh, partnering with us because we are a tech enabled clean energy developer, but we are a developer and we do focus in low-income communities in, in many of the communities that Enterprise uh, focuses on. And, you know, so we've been talking to Enterprise since 2014. We, we've never been able to complete a transaction with them over that time frame. Um, we, we were able to raise $50 million from Goldman Sachs. Um, and so from our perspective, in some ways, it's like easier to raise $50 million from Goldman Sachs in the private sector than it's been for us to raise capital from the Enterprise Foundation. So I do think that the internal assessment that they're doing to investigate their own practices is very necessary. Um, you know, it's 2021. And not just them. I think this is a challenge to the sector in general, we need to supercharge and scale up what's been working like you and Block Power and the work that you've been doing has been successful in expanding to other verticals. And who else is out here? Um, I think the report was hopefully a ringing of the bell for some folks because we need to do things differently if we're going to keep the global temperatures from rising by less than 1.5. And 
it's not a guarantee. Is there any other call to action you might issue for the impact world? Oh, gosh, you're, you're, you're like baiting me. And I'm going to say something crazy <laughs> and you're going to have to cut it out of the podcast. I mean, <laughs> I look, I, I started out as a social entrepreneur um, coming out of Columbia Business School where I was in the social entrepreneurship program. I took impact investment classes. And back in 2012, 2013, all of us had really high hopes for impact investing. And, you know, again, as we're looking back in 2021, I'm not quite sure that impact investing um, has had as much impact as we all would like. Um, I think that the infrastructure bill, record economic inequality, uh, the reckoning with racial injustice and gender inequality across the country, there certainly are opportunities for impact investing to step up and participate in building a better world. And I do believe that impact investors want to build a better world. I could only speculate as to what's preventing them from actually doing that. Um, and I am on the other side of the table as an entrepreneur. Um, I do think that the model of impact investment that Kapoor Capital, that Mitch and Frida Kapoor Klein and Brian and Ulili have pioneered. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars as venture capitalists. They've been extremely successful financially, but also they've identified diverse teams led by women, led by people of color that have overperformed and outperformed everybody else and created a ton of impact. And so what they're doing is working. And as a millennial, I do, what gives me hope is not that like a 40-year-old organization wakes up in 2021 and figures out that it's kind of racist in terms of its own lending after decades and decades of investing in billions of dollars of projects and communities of color. What gives me hope is that millennials as a new generation, that as, as we experiment with new kinds of capitalism, new kinds of companies, new kinds of investment structures, um, that we can generate some solutions quickly, they're going to have a high impact um, because it's new ideas and new energy that's needed to, to scale up and um, solve many of these problems. I think practically... Impact investing, in my view, has never really shifted out of like a private equity, New York, East Coast, transactional-based mindset into more of the risk-tolerant, long-term, patient um, ecosystem of investment that is kind of the best practice in Silicon Valley and on the West Coast. And so tactically would love to see more impact investors studying the successful venture capital and early stage investment models from Silicon Valley and, and from Echoing Green, who in my book are still the leading impact investors in the world. Um, and so I just hope that with this wake up call of the IPCC report and all of the impact that we all are aware needs to, to be created immediately in order to like preserve 
life chances for our children and our grandchildren that impact investors will get serious about figuring out what's working and continue to professionalize um, impact investment practices with with best practices. How was that? You said it all. You said it all. That wasn't too controversial. It was good. New ideas, new innovations, scale what's working, follow the models that have done it right. Um, it's fantastic advice. And I play that everyone who's listening heeds it. Let's let's hope so. We we do need impact investors, people of goodwill to collaborate and really find a way to act on their intentions, which I believe are real, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to build a better world. And I think entrepreneurs do want to help impact investors do that. And I hope that there can be an immediate and collaborative conversation about how we can really conspire and collaborate together um, to do things differently. Because I think that's, that's what both sides want. I agree. Couldn't agree more. It's time to rethink it all and do things differently if we want different outcomes. Well, that brings us to the end. Um, thank you for joining us today, Donnell. It has been a pleasure to have you on today and I can't wait to have you back. Yeah, anytime. I'm always happy to connect with you all. That's going to do it for your Impact Briefing this week. More all day at impactalpha.com. Thank you, Donnell. And thanks to our producer, Isaac Silk. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take good care.